Join me in Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. I begin a series this morning, God's Supremacy and Human Deficiency. And we'll start this morning with Daniel chapter 1. There was a seminary family where the man in the family was attending classes and taking a full load. And his wife was working in the workforce with her skills. And in fact, she was a quality control inspector for a pharmaceutical company. And one day, an order came to this company for syringes. And she was to inspect them, and she did. And she feared that they were contaminated, and she would not sign off on their release to be sent to the customer. Well, it bothered her boss, and he threatened her job. And she did not relent. And they called the president of the company. It was such a large order, it got his attention. And he came and saw her on a Friday and insisted that she sign documentation releasing them as clean. And he said, think about it over the weekend and tell me Monday what you will desire to do. Those kinds of pressures were very real for that family because at that time, as her husband was in seminary, She was the primary breadwinner. She was taking care of the family. They didn't have another source of income. And these are similar pressures to what Daniel faces in Daniel chapter 1 as a teenager, maybe a middle, maybe an older teenager. There is enormous change that's taken place in his life. And these are heavy pressures that he's facing in Daniel chapter 1. There is... History. Look at verses 1 and 2 of Daniel 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried to the land of Shinar, an old name for Babylon, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Judah was threatened for centuries by God and his prophets with invasion. If they did not stop their disobedience to God's word and dilution of their worship. And make no mistake about it, ancient Judah did not stop worshiping God or practicing the Old Testament. They simply mixed it with the religion of the Canaanites. And so they were still doing what they were supposed to do, but they were mixing it with pagan practices. And God said, if you don't knock it off, I'm going to invade the land. And that's precisely what he did. And Daniel then was deported around 605 B.C. to Babylon. He has lost his homeland. He's probably lost his family. He's part of the royal family. And his relative, the king Jehoiakim, has been deported as well. In fact, he saw his sons killed. And the king of Babylon was so cruel that after his sons were killed, he ordered his eyes to be burned out. So the last thing he saw in life was the cruel execution of his sons. That's the environment Daniel is living in. It's not a happy place and it's not a happy day for Daniel. This is the kind of pressure that is being brought to him. Now God did promise in Jeremiah 29 that after 70 years they would come back to the land. But Daniel has got to live all of those decades throughout his life as a religious minority in Babylon. 
Because of this, much of the time, his life is completely anonymous. And you know, anonymity can be a big challenge to the Christian life. Anonymity probably has bred more temptation and more difficulty for salesmen, for students, and for others who are anonymous. More Christians misbehave in an anonymous environment than just about any environment on the earth. I remember as a kid coming up in a small military agricultural town that I, I, it dawned on me, my parents knew everywhere I went and everyone I was with, whether I told them or not. They knew everybody, everyone. My mother had taught everyone, and so it occurred to me, I'm not getting away with anything, so I just didn't try anything. It wasn't because I was virtuous. It's just that I was pessimistic. I could get away with anything. Well, that's because I was known by virtue of who my parents were. Daniel's whole life, family, had been decimated, and he's in Babylon and nearly unanimous with that kind of pressure. So there's the history, but then there's the city of Babylon. Babylon is the capital city of the nation of Babylon. It is permeated with idolatry. At all of its gates, there are idols. There are multiple and abundant temples to each of their idols and their gods. It's a commercial city. City, Much of that part of the world relies upon Babylon, and then it is a university city as well. It's filled with libraries and centers of study that are devoted to law and astronomy and astrology and architecture and engineering and medicine and art. That's the kind of city he's in. Daniel has gone from the backwoods, comparatively, to the big city of Babylon. And, and then there's Daniel's age. The King James Version calls he and his friends children. Uh, they're really older than that. Uh, the Hebrew term here is for a teenager. He's probably at least 14, probably no older than 17 years old when he is deported to Babylon. And here we find that Daniel is faithful to the Most High God anyway. And that's the theological emphasis of the entire book of Daniel. God is the Most High God even over these that are captive. And the Most High God blessed Daniel for taking a risk to obey obscure Levitical laws that governed his diet. So Daniel was faithful to those, and God blessed him. So that leads me to an analysis of the text. Let's just look at the text and unfold it as it appears in the Scripture. The first thing I want you to notice is re-education. Re-education. Beginning in verse 3, it says, The king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs or court officials, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans, an ancient name for the Babylonians. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies and of wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. Now from among those sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach and Azariah, 
Abednego. Here is an attempt to re-educate Daniel and his three friends. You see, the king was very wise and very capable, as his officials were, in identifying and grooming leadership for the next generation. They're very committed to doing that thing, and so they looked among the royal family of Judah for those that they might re-educate and bring up and groom for future uh, leadership and for staff service to the court. And so they looked at the royal family, and they taught them the languages of Babylon. They taught them mathematics, myths, medicine, history, the literature, and they were also concerned about the look of these young men. They, they wanted to make the best impression on the kingdom. Looks were extremely important in this era of Babylon. And so they reshaped their diet to help them physically to make them appear better. They also did something that many have done through the centuries when they want to change the mind of others. Not only re-education, but renaming cities and renaming persons. Now Daniel's name and Azariah's and Mishael's name and Hananiah's name all have the word Lord or God, the God of Israel, in their name. Each one of them. Daniel's name means God is my judge. Hananiah, the Lord is gracious. Mishael, who is what God is. And Azariah, the Lord has helped. And you notice that in verse number 7, they end up changing their names from these Hebrew names that exalt the God of the Bible to Babylonian names that each involve the name of a Babylonian god. They changed Daniel's name to Belshazzar, which means Bel, the god Bel, uh, protects the king. Shadrach becomes, or, or excuse me, Hananiah becomes Shadrach, and that means command of a coup, a Babylonian god. Meshach means who is what a coup is, and Abednego means servant of Nego. In other words, they engage in an ancient form of social engineering. The communists of China and the communists of the Soviet Union, when they took power, did not waste a lot of time changing the names of their cities. Uh, in fact, uh, they um, changed the name, the Soviets did, of St. Petersburg to Leningrad. They did not want the idea in the Soviets' mind, any of the citizens' mind, that at one time they honored St. Peter, atheistic government that they would. And so they wanted them to honor Lenin, Vladimir Lenin, and so they changed the name to Leningrad. Of course, when communism collapsed in 91 in the Soviet Union, they quickly changed the name back to St. Petersburg. But they did that to reshape the mind and reshape the thinking of Daniel and his friends. Ladies and gentlemen, that same movement is afoot in our nation as well. There are entire words and sets of vocabulary words that are being sought to be removed from our culture. Words like truth, male, female, better, or any comparative, commands, conscience, sin, and even the word Jesus or term Jesus Christ. In many places, it's entirely acceptable to talk about God. But when you define God as God has defined Himself, you can create some difficulty and tension in a room by using the name of Jesus Christ, and we find that even in some churches. Well, let me, let me just clarify a misconception here. Beach Haven, without being abrasive and without being harsh, is intensely committed to the name of Jesus. And we shall exalt Him, and if necessary, 
pay the price, probably a small one at least initially, for doing so. We exalt Him. There is a move afoot then by changing vocabulary and these concepts, these background foundational ways of thinking like sin and commandment and failure and better. There is a move afoot then, uh, maybe intentional, maybe unintentional, to eradicate from people's thinking concepts that help us understand the gospel of Christ. That we are sinners in need of a Savior, the best and only and exalted God is Jesus Christ, and only by His death, wherein He paid the penalty for our sins, and satisfied the court of God, and rose again from the dead, defeating demonic powers, sin, hell, and the grave, can we be saved? He's our only, He's our only, do you hear me? He's our only hope. Well, that uh, movement didn't begin here. We find it in this ancient place of Babylon in this process of education. You're going to find as you read further that despite these attempts to change, Daniel wouldn't. And that leads us to the second element here, and that is resolve. In verse 7 it says that... And you can't see this in the English text, but in the Hebrew text, it reads in verse 7, To them the chief of eunuchs set names, gave names, set names. He set Daniel, the name Belshazzar. In verse 8, But Daniel set in his heart, he would not defile himself. And so Babylon attempted to set, Babylon attempted to reset the thinking of these four Hebrew youths of the royal family, but Daniel set his heart. They might set one thing, but Daniel's going to set another. He set his heart that he would not be defiled by the king's delicacies. He resolved that. And, and so what happened is that they attempted to improve his looks and stature by giving him a different diet and uh, by uh, changing uh, his meal plan. And Daniel objected. I mean, Daniel was one of the first in history to object to the dining hall meal plan. And that's what he does here. He set on his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's delicacies. Now, why would Daniel object to the university meal plan here? Well, the primary reason is the word defile. It's a word picked up out of Leviticus where God prohibited the Hebrews from defiling themselves with a certain diet of food, whether it was horse flesh, which the Babylonians favored, or whether it happened to be shellfish, which really in that day you didn't want to eat anyway, or whether it happened to be swine. And God gave Israel these laws for a number of reasons until the Holy Spirit came, one of which happened to be that it distinguished them from the pagans around them. And the world needed to know that they were different. So it served the purpose of difference. And let me, encourage, uh, let me assure you, none of the Jews died of starvation under this diet, by the way, okay? Just because they couldn't have swine, just because they couldn't have horse flesh, didn't mean they died, all right? But having said that, before the Holy Spirit came, they all needed constant reminders in every area of life that they belonged to the Lord. Now, in our day, we can eat as much pork as we like because we have the Holy Spirit. 
And he constantly reminds us that we belong to Jesus Christ and we're to always be about exalting his name and glorifying his name forever and forever. But if your clothing is regulated by Levitical law or law in Exodus, and if your diet is regulated and your social interactions and your government and every area of life is dominated by Levitical law or by the law of Exodus, then you have constant reminders in front of you that you belong to God, and you're waiting for that. You're, you hold on to those until the day the Holy Spirit comes. And that happened in Acts chapter 2, and that's why we're not expected to obey those laws. They've served their purpose. But Daniel is before the day of the Holy Spirit, and he is determined to obey Levitical law when it comes to diet. Now, I can hear some of his friends saying, Wait a minute, Daniel. Really? Here we are away from home, and no one's going to know if you obey these obscure laws or disobey them. Daniel, don't be so narrow-minded. And to those with the history at youth camp, please don't be such a Pharisee. Or the theological students would say, please, don't be like the fundamentalist down the road, Daniel. Please don't do that. Um, you're wasting an opportunity. You could make an impact on everyone, but by stirring a controversy here, you're wasting an opportunity. And then what about the official? Look what the official says. Uh, Daniel, uh, in verse 8, said he would not defile himself with the king's delicacies. And now, uh, verse 9, Dan, uh, God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who's appointed your food and drink, for why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. And I can hear someone trying to manipulate Daniel, saying, look, you put this guy's life at risk if you insist on not following these laws and being faithful. So look what Daniel did in verse 11. Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had set over, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be examined before you and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies. And as you see fit, so deal with your servants. And so he consented with them in this matter and tested them ten days. Now Daniel was very polite and very courteous with his convictions. Daniel did not stage a protest. Daniel did not hire an attorney. Daniel did not start writing letters. There are some occasions where that, some of those things might be very appropriate. But Daniel was very courteous with his convictions. It is not necessary to be cranky if you have convictions. Not necessary. 1 Peter 3.15 says that always be ready to have an answer for the hope that is within you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And so he was very respectful, and he asked for a test. He said, take 10 days, let us eat our diet, let the others eat the king's diet, and then compare us at the end, and that is precisely what he agreed to. There was resolve there. But then the third section here in the text is reward, verses 15 through 21. God rewarded the faithfulness of Daniel. Now, back in verse 9, it said Daniel had, God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of eunuchs. Well, not only that, but his own. And look at what it says in verse 15. This is delicious. Verse 15, At the end of the ten days, their features appeared better and fatter in flesh than all the young men who ate the portion of the king's delicacies. 
Thus the steward took away their portion of the delicacies and the wine which they were given to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all the literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all the visions and the dreams. Now at the end of the days when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And then the king interviewed them, and among them all none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better, literally ten hands better. Uh, They were as good, each one of them, as ten hired hands. He found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. And now watch this. We've started with the beginning of Daniel's life, early in his life, and now we accelerate and fast forward to the very end. Verse 21, thus Daniel continued until the first year of King Cyrus, more than 70 years later. God rewarded them and Daniel for faithfulness. He rewarded their body. They were more vibrant and stronger. They, in fact, had gained weight. God had intervened and taken care of them. They were uh, rewarded in mind. Uh, Daniel and his friends exceeded all the others in understanding their uh, university course. In fact, that reminds me of another boy by the name of Daniel. He went off for his freshman year in his first semester, and his dad told him, Son, uh, if you will pass all your courses, I'll give you $50 at the end of the semester. He came home. His dad asked him about it, and Daniel had failed everything miserably, but he had a good spin on it. He said, Dad, the good news is I saved you $50. That, that's not what's going on here. Daniel, this Daniel would have collected. And then he blessed him in spirit. Daniel received further insight into God and his plan, which covers chapters 2 through 12. And then God rewarded them in stature. They were exalted above all the others. And then in longevity, Daniel continued faithfully all the way through the end of his life more than 70 years later. Now this is remarkable and delicious irony. They begin low and Babylon begins high. The chapter ends with Daniel high and Babylon low because 70 years later, Cyrus and the Persians would conquer Babylon and release the Jews. Daniel was part of Cyrus's court and he was the one, according to Isaiah 45 and other texts, who were responsible for releasing the Jews out of Babylon to return back to Jerusalem where they would build the nation and the city into which Jesus would enter and preach and teach. I wonder if Daniel handled the official royal papers the king would sign announcing the release of the Jews back to Babylon 70 years later. We don't know, but certainly Daniel was entirely aware of this. This is wonderful irony. Reminds me of a movie, a Hollywood movie executive who in 1964 told an actor that he couldn't get the lead part in this movie about a president because he didn't have a presidential look. Ironically, he was speaking to Ronald Reagan. Are you familiar with the name John Stephen Aquari? In 1968, he ran for his nation, Tanzania, in the Mexico City Olympics. And he ran a marathon. And early on, he injured himself. He fell and dislocated his shoulder and injured his knee. But he finished the race anyway an hour and ten minutes after the winter. He was interviewed afterwards. And he was asked, why did he continue the race? 
And he said, my nation did not send me here to start the race. My nation sent me here to finish the race. And that's what verse 21 is telling us. Nebuchadnezzar and all the other kings in Babylon could not finish. But Daniel, with his faithfulness to God, was able to finish. Listen, let me, let me land this plane for just a moment. You can afford to be faithful to God. You can afford to obey God because God favors faithfulness. And there, there are three applications I want to make from this then. One, faithfulness responds to probing. Faithfulness responds to examination. Faithfulness responds to testing. In your walk with God, expect God to intentionally and purposefully arrange circumstances to test where you are with Him. And it's not that God needs more information. Oh no, God knows where you are. But sometimes we need a sober introduction to where we are with God, and God will intentionally arrange circumstances in order to test where we are with Him and to expose our faithfulness or lack of faithfulness. And oftentimes He uses a transition, whether it's a change in jobs, a change of home, change of location. And every one of these transitions may multiply opportunities, but they also multiply temptations. And that's the whole point to expose our faithfulness. At that point, where we are vulnerable, but God is attempting to show us where we are with Him and either confirm what He's done in our life so we give Him praise and thanks, or to shock us into rededication in our walk with Him. You see, He knows us better than we know ourselves, and sometimes we don't even know ourselves. Paul would say that in 1 Corinthians 4. But God knows us and intentionally arranges circumstances to test where we are. He probes us, and how we respond, how we respond displays our faithfulness. In fact, some right now are going through a testing. And this testing is shouting a number of things. And the prominent thing is, give your life to Christ. He's crucified, buried, raised again, and He is worthy of your trust and your faith. Or you know Him, but rededicate yourself to Him. Immerse yourself in a local church. Start doing the things you did when you were the most victorious and happy in Jesus. Oftentimes, that's what our difficulties and testings do. But there's a second thing. Not only does faithfulness respond to probing, but faithfulness results in peril. Let me assure you, if Daniel could not escape perils in Babylon, it's not likely you will escape perils in Athens. It's not likely at all. In fact, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 10. I want to look at that in just a moment. But I want us to read a long section of Scripture that Jesus said about this very thing. But it is not likely that you will escape peril, risk, challenge, or difficulty here, no matter who or what you are. It is coming on the way. And Jesus alerted His disciples to that in Matthew chapter 10. And the reason is, is that humans are wildly inconsistent. Everyone praises idealism until someone lives it. And everyone extols the search for truth until someone finds it. We're terribly inconsistent. Very, very confused with as much stability as a termite in a yo-yo. Or as Isaiah said, we are as stable 
as water. Risk when you follow Jesus Christ is impossible to avoid. And so there are some people that are trying to be real quiet about their walk with Christ. They don't want to be identified with that zealous group of people that follow Christ. They don't want to be involved in this or that, and they're keeping Christ at an arm's distance on one hand. They attend worship on some occasions and all, but quietly sneak in and quietly sneak out. They're not very loud because they're afraid of being found out. Let me assure you that only lasts for so long. Somebody, maybe even God, will do something to expose the fact that you belong to Jesus Christ. Risk is not avoidable. It is unavoidable at every turn. I remember I came to Christ at the end of my junior year in high school. A few months later, God called me to ministry. A year later, I went to a Baptist university in Texas to study for ministry. And my first week there, my first week there, I got a job and was told as a preacher I would have to work on Sundays. Now, I had already been preaching. I started preaching every Sunday in April of my senior year in high school. And that was my desire. Now, I understand there are times when folks have got to work on Sundays. There, there's law enforcement. There's the, uh, those involved in medicine and some other things, and that's certainly understandable, and we appreciate their sacrifice and their service. But ladies and gentlemen, preachers are supposed to preach on Sundays. And I had this thing going through my mind that was, reiterate, that was uh, emphasized to me by my pastor. He told me, when you go to school, you be the kind of church member you expect your future church members to be. If you're not, it will come out and it will expose you. Don't you be a hypocrite. Well, I took it seriously. Make very good sense to me. And so here I am on the campus of a leading, premier, Bible-oriented Baptist university, and my boss is telling me, I've got to work on Sundays. And I said, I can't. I've got to be available. He said, you'll lose your job if you don't. Think about it over the weekend. That seems to be a tactic among that crowd, isn't it? Think about it over the weekend. Well, I didn't really need to. My decision was made up before I ever saw him. I came back on Monday. I came back on Monday, and I told Jerry, I said, Jerry, I appreciate you, and I appreciate the opportunity to work, and I need the money, but I can't do it. Well, it didn't end very dramatically. He said, okay, they moved on. <laughs> so there was nothing that uh, resulted from it. But I've got to tell you, that was a stressful week. I started thinking through and praying about other employment and asking God to direct me and give me strength. But here's my point. I was on the campus of a Baptist university rooted in the Word of God. I hadn't been there a week, and already I'm tempted to compromise my integrity. In just one, listen, if I couldn't escape it in 1983 in East Texas on a, the campus of a Baptist university, how is anyone to escape today? Ladies and gentlemen, risk is unavoidable. You will not be able to follow Jesus without taking some kind of risk. And that's why I've asked you to turn to Matthew chapter 10. I'm not making this up. It's right there in verse 16. Look, behold... I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. In other words, I send you out as one of the most unintelligent animals on the planet. In the midst of the most cunning and hungry animals on the planet. Therefore, ironically, be as wise as serpents and harmless of doves. But beware of men, for they deliver you in the councils and scourge you in their pagan palaces. Is that what it says? 
No, it says in their synagogues, the place of Jewish worship. And then he goes on in verse 21. Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. Not if, but when they persecute you in this city, flee to another. And then he goes on to verse 24, and he compares their prospects with his own history. He said, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher, and a servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of the household? If they've called me, Jesus says, the prince of demons, Beelzebub, imagine what they're going to do with you. Therefore, do not fear them. Verse 27. Uh, excuse me. Look at verse number 32. Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him will I also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father in heaven. Do not think I came to bring peace upon the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. You cannot follow Jesus faithfully without understanding the reality of risk. And if you're going to follow him, you've got to be prepared to meet it. But there's a third thing. Faithfulness rests on promises. God says, I'll be with you. You know that seminary family I talked about at the beginning? The lady who was the quality control inspector for the pharmaceutical? She thought about signing papers, releasing the syringes to the customer. And she thought about it over the weekend and came back Monday and met with the president and her supervisor and said, I will not sign it. And they fired her. Word sped through customers what she did. That company found out about it and hired her and increased her pay because of her integrity. God promises to stand by those who will stand with Him. I don't know how. I don't know what He'll do. I can't predict His actions. Probably won't be what I expect. Probably will be better will surprise us all, but God promises to stand with those who will stand with Him. We may not have a supportive environment, but we do have a faithful God who favors faithfulness. Jesus, in fact, would say, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Back to that first week in college, my freshman year. I arrived and immediately took up with a group of people that um, real quickly became friends. In fact, the primary person happened to be a cheerleader there in school, and I thought, well, that's a great way to start the freshman year. And so I hung out with this cheerleader, a few others, and a few of their other friends. And as I went on for the next several days, I began to listen, and they were talking about violating some standards in the student code of conduct. Now, the school I went to in 1983 was a um, pretty typical uh, Baptist university uh, in that day. Uh, we had curfews. Men and women were not allowed in each other's dorm. You could stay in the lobby for 15 minutes, and then they hijacked you out. It, it, it was tight in many ways. 
Uh, but these particular standards were things you would be ve- that they were contemplating violating. You'd be very, very surprised that a Baptist student, I don't know, maybe you wouldn't be, but uh, very surprised that a Baptist student would be contemplating and scheming to violate. Well, I heard this talk, and I quietly backed away from this group. I didn't say anything, wasn't abrasive, but withdrew. And after a couple of days, Satan's mistress, or twin sister, came and found me. And confronted me. And she said, now you have to understand, I had just arrived from the West Coast where I'd become a Christian in an environment that was nothing like the southern United States. And Satan's twin sister came up to me and she said, you think you're better than us. That's something they'll always use, by the way. You think you're better than us. And I said, I really don't. But I'm here the first week, and I'm not looking to get myself thrown out of school as a ministerial student the first week of my enrollment. That's not what I want to do. And she said some garbage and walked off. Well, I have to tell you, I had not faced that kind of pressure to capitulate and to compromise standards even on the West Coast amongst a bunch of folks that didn't claim the knowledge of Christ. And I was sore and sour about that. I already had been through this experience with my supervisor at work. All of that in my first week, my freshman year. And I've got to tell you, I was pretty lonely and heartbroken. And I thought, are all these people Mickey Mouse when it comes to the faith? What in the world's going on here? Do do I have a sign on me? If you're the worst person on campus, would you please be my friend? I mean, what's going on? It was heartbreaking. It was very confusing, and I I wondered if I'd made a mistake choosing this particular school. Well, I thought about that overnight, and the next day I was standing in line to purchase textbooks. Now, most of you don't know, well, uh, some of you don't know what it's like to purchase textbooks standing in line or to register for classes standing in line. Oh, my, you're missing a treat. You really are. When it comes to textbooks, no, you don't want that textbook. Don't buy it. Rent it. Don't get the new. Get the used. In fact, let me pick one up out of the trash. You can have it. Hey, profs, that's what they do with their textbooks, okay? But uh, you, you miss that. And then professors, you, you get the insight from previous students who've had one prof over the other. Now, we had a divided campus when it came to Dr. Polly and taking history. Uh, she had to climb up three flights of stairs. No elevator in Marshall Hall. She had to climb up three flights of stairs to get to the classroom, the history section of the building, and she was out of breath. Some students would not take her because they were afraid she would die in class in the middle of the semester. The rest of us took her hoping she would so that we could get an easier time of the semester. So we were kind of divided. That's what you miss by registering in line and purchasing textbooks in line. But I was standing there uh, about to purchase textbooks in line when out of nowhere comes a six-foot-three lanky young man, and he came up and introduced himself to me by saying this, Hey, man, you dog, my name is Bill Stroud. Randy Jackson of American Idol got that from us, okay? You dog, my name is Bill Stroud. Good to meet you. And that day, Bill and I started a friendship and walked with God together and have even to this morning when I told him I was going to tell him this story. 
That day, God gave me strength in someone. God rewards faithfulness. Let me tell you something. You just obey God and leave the consequences to Him. You obey God and leave the future with Him. You can't do anything about the future anyway. God is the only one who can. You do what God says and leave the consequences with Him. 1 Thessalonians 5.24 is another promise. Faithful is He who called you, and He will do it. God will not fail you. God favors faithfulness. Obey God. Leave the future to Him. But you know, it's at that point where many of us have some guilt that we need to deal with before God. So often, we become anxious over the future and try to take control, and that almost always involves some kind of serious compromise, something that, uh, something that uh, is disapproved by God, and that's where we end up failing. I want to assure you today, God is a God of grace and has enough grace and has enough love to cancel any sin or violation of His law that you've ever done. You see, when Jesus went to the cross, He paid for it all. He suffered for it all. And that thing that wakes you up in the morning and puts you at bed tonight, the thing that you're embarrassed about, that's what Jesus became at the cross. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Today is the day to start anew. But you've got to first give up on controlling your future and just entrust it with God. You take care of the obedience God takes care of the consequences. Leave it there, and He will build in you a life of faithfulness that will endure throughout the days of your life. We're going to sing a song in just a moment. And when we do, we're going to give you the opportunity to get the present and the future adjusted to where God is in your life. And we want to encourage you to come. Our staff will be standing here in front, and we're going to invite you to respond positively to Him. Would you stand and let me pray for you? And after we pray, we're going to sing. And we're going to ask you to come. Our Father, we want to thank you that you were more than capable of taking care of everything.